Gratitude Friday. Oh, God. Dude, this is so bad. <laughs> Come on, dude. Oh, uh, Flight Suit Friday listeners, what is going on? Dude. My name is Kenny Sam. What's up, buddy? <laughs> Man, good start to the episode. I think we got to keep it. That's good. Oh, you're, you seem like you're ready to chat today. Uh, I am currently drowning in OERs like most of you out there right now. Oh. It is the season. How many have come across your desk? I think I'm 10 of 22 complete. 10 of 22 out of 100 and God knows how many offices. I couldn't even imagine being the XO at a unit like this where, I mean, at that point you probably like, well, we hope that they look at it really you know, with a fine tooth comb and I'm sure they do, but still like you got to get it until like number 80 and you're just like, I don't know who this person is anymore. Like, yeah. So this is, I'm glad to kind of break away here. I got an, just opened up a nice little shiner block. Nice dude. Yeah. That's, about a good you? One. That's not at the 6% level that you like though. No, but uh, we're talking to someone from Houston and this is a Texas beer. So I like it. Hey, uh, yeah, good. Get over here. I'm drinking uh, Agua. I got a student flight tonight, but uh, excited to talk to our guests, but before we do that, let's uh, let's get into some shout-outs. All right, we'll do some uh, fleet shout-outs. So, uh, like shout AI, does, does anyone care about AI or Hitron? Mm-hmm. I don't even know. But no. just just in case, in case anyone's listening from Hitron, uh, it sounds like they had a yeah total snooze fest. <laughs> uh, it sounds like they had a good case downrange where. Uh, GoFast was using some evasive maneuvers to try to avoid uh, getting a disabling fire mm-hmm. used against them. Also, some interesting discussion of the GoFast, you know, approaching the OTH that was uh, supporting that. And it just brought up some good 3710 warranted risk unit self-defense type of stuff. So um, that was Corinne Swagger, Nathan Pfeiffer, and the gunner was Phil McCarty. So for you, Hitron Cowboys, good job. Did they get the boat? Yeah, I think they did. Did they? Nice. Yeah, they got them. Yeah, I mean, we, we joke about the who cares, but like they do get to do some really cool flying. They do yank and bank the 65 AI and uh, AUF more than assault SAR dogs do. Yeah, um, it is true. I would say I would put any pilot at Hitron up against any SAR pilot. Their, yeah. Their skills are probably far or superior. Yeah, is that just because you're a prior hit pilot, dude? Signed prior hit jump pilot. <laughs> Sweet, dude. Uh, well, into the cooler SAR world, uh, we're actually going to be talking to somebody from Houston on this podcast, um, and hopefully he can give us a little more information on this case. But got this one from uh, Commander Connor, the ops boss there. Uh, Dan Chase was the PIC uh, ops boss, Commander Connor. He was the um, sitting left seat. Um, actually, he was probably PIC. Dan was just sitting right seat. Yeah, he tried to remain nameless. He did. Yeah, we'll name him. So, yep, Commander Connor, he (laughs) was on this case. Also with uh, AMT2 Chris Collins and AST1 Vince Neiman, they uh, got reports of a rig that caught fire, had nine people on board as uh, I think out towards the Sabine Pass and flew out there and had to do some interesting hoisting, you know, probably in the fire or near the fire and then getting those people off and, and onto a safer uh, platform. So congrats, uh, Houston crews. That's awesome. All right. Moving into some fleet news, uh, echo transition stuff. Hitron is all finished up. They're completely an echo unit now and uh, moving on to Humboldt. Humboldt be for the next couple of weeks. And then after that, San Fran will start. Yeah. And, uh, New Orleans is, is, 
fast approaching uh, full uh, 60 uh, unit there. And in anticipation for that and uh, the continuation of us shifting 65 to 60 units, um, the enlisted stand team and specifically, I think the 60E stand has come up with a uh, flight mech transition course. I think it takes about six weeks. Uh, They're hosting it here at ATC where you'll come here and go through your entire BA ground uh, and flight syllabus in about five weeks. And then that last week, we'll focus on your flight mech transition. And uh, you'll come out of here, spit out as a, a qualified uh, 60 flight mech in, in six weeks. So it's a beta test right now. And uh, luckily, our next uh, podcast guests are some of the people who put it together. So we'll get to hear some more information about that. It's pretty neat. Awesome. All right. Should we get into it? Yeah, man. All right. Let's do it. All right, folks. We've got uh, Lieutenant Commander Mike Freeman from Air Station Houston on the line. What's going on, Mike? Hey, man. How you doing, guys? Good, dude. It's good to hear your voice. Uh, Yeah. Interesting topic today. Uh, You know, we're going to dive into a little bit about a class alpha mishap and and a safety culture and some experience that you had. But before we jump into that, can you just uh, give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm an 09 grad, like you, Sam, course, what, what? Uh, from the academy. Went down to uh, Cutter Confidence for just a little bit over a year. Got out for good behavior on early parole. Did uh, you know some time at flight school. First tour was uh, Los Angeles from late in 2012 until uh, closing it down in 2016. Then went over to uh, ATC at the uh, Stan branch for uh, three years until 2019, and then got to uh, Houston summer of uh, summer of 19. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Good stuff, man. And I heard you want to be an astronaut. Is that true? Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, <laughs> it's uh, you know literal moonshot, but that is the goal. So. I mean, there are coasties that have done it before, right? What's that? There are Coasties that are astronauts, right? Uh, yeah. So there have been uh, two active duty, uh, both aviators, uh, Bruce Melnick and Dan Burbank. And then uh, actually, um, currently, Andre Douglas is in the new class. Uh, he just classed up in January, and he's actually at flight school right now in Pensacola, learning how to do stuff in the back seat down at Mainside. So um, pretty cool. Pretty cool opportunity. He's, uh, he's no longer active duty, but uh, we were stationed together first tour he was on the vigilant when i was on the confidence in the same port so Man. kind of a neat connection there congrats to him what's uh yeah well what's the giant uh, mount everest that you're climbing to try and get uh, a possible slot as an astronaut yeah i mean uh for those that don't know you have to have a stem masters uh to apply and really that's kind of like minimum flair so uh i was a management major at the academy which so that checks out <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so whoops um, great degree. Wish I had maybe known about my, uh, grown up ideas back then, but, uh, nonetheless, uh, when I realized that I kind of wanted to pursue that path, I started and completed a, a bachelor's degree remotely through Arizona state and then rolled right into a master's, which I'm going to finish this July. So both in electrical engineering after that, I'll have to probably do some more stuff to even, you know, be competitive and not just be a, a minimum player applicant, but at the same time, that is the goal. So. We'll see what happens. Man, best of luck, dude. That's really cool. Uh, hey, we mentioned it in a shout out uh, before we jump into the the rest of the story that the podcast is about today. Um, can you dive in a little bit more about that SAR case that you guys had, picking uh, what nine people off a burning rig? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I have some knowledge of the case. 
I actually was the oncoming crew. That was a, a mid-afternoon case, and so we came in um, while they were kind of on their way back from uh, from the rig fire case. Uh, so I, I learned a little bit about it. I'll try to give you everything that I know. Um, they ended up hoisting nine people off of a rig that was on fire. Um, some of the highlights, it was uh, kind of like marginal VFR to IFR throughout throughout the duration. I can't remember exactly all the conditions, but I know that it was uh, pretty poor transit. Mm-hmm. Once they got on scene, it was a little bit better hoisting conditions, but the, the transit physically over there was, was not great. It was over in Sabine, so about an hour away. Mm-hmm. And uh, once they got on scene, I guess they were setting up, trying to figure out how they're going to hoist these uh, folks off the, the rig that was on fire. And on short final into the rig, it, there was actually a, a subsequent explosion that uh, kind of tightened them up a little bit. So Whoa. they did some more more evaluation, kind of observed it for a little while and, and determined it was safe to proceed. But uh, during the course of their hoisting, it definitely uh, deteriorated a little bit in terms of, uh, you know, additional smoke and fumes and all that type of stuff. So they, uh, they worked together as a crew, kind of got creative, um, doing some different hoisting techniques. But eventually... Uh, the, what they did was they basically just transited the people from the uh, rig that was on fire to a rig that was just nearby. I mean, these were all in the channel kind of uh, right next to each other. So yeah. they were able to just kind of drop people off and then return and uh, kind of expedited everything a little bit. Some, some via hoisting and then uh, some via actually landing as well and kind of keeping light pressure on the, uh, on the tires. Man, that is a, that's a good one. Good job, Dan, on that one. And, and ops uh, at Houston. Um, cool yeah, case. Yeah, super unique case. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Good for them. Hey, uh, we, we steamrolled right over, but Kenny's drinking a Texas beer. You got any beverage in front of you? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I'm breaking from the beer rank and I'm drinking a ranch water, a little Topo Chico and tequila. <laughs> nice. Splash of, uh, splash of lime. Uh-huh. Uh, 80 degrees today, so it just felt right. You know, you got to keep that uh, figure slim, too. You can't be drinking too many calories of the beer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you got to be careful. <laughs> uh, well, just, let's jump into it. Um, you were part of uh, pretty a significant uh, event, probably emotionally and, and physically there. And uh, you want to just set the scene for us? Yeah. Um, so what we're getting at is obviously the uh, the 6522 Class A mishap Um of which I had the great honor of being the PIC. Um, so I'll kind of give you a little bit of background. I mean, this story could go on for, for quite a while, so I'll try to hit all the, the high points and make it uh, interesting for the listeners without uh, just dragging on for hours. But basically, uh, summer of 2020, right after Houston completed the echo transition as the first unit, uh, Hurricane Laura came knocking at the door, and it was scheduled to be a potential cat five and i think it actually was a category five over the gulf at some point mm-hmm. but it was supposed to make landfall as a cat four cat five uh right in the houston area so uh, we put together a couple crews as of course no one is surprised and we uh we departed the hangar uh with two aircraft uh, the two two and i forget which other aircraft we took uh out to the west uh, about an hour west to pre-position kind of get away from the storm a little bit and then hopefully be able to come back in on the uh on the good side of the storm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, night before we preposition, kind of do all our briefing and, and initial CRM and everything like that, getting a good idea of what we're going to be up against overnight, really at the last minute, sometime around maybe two or three in the morning, the storm kind of turned to the East and as it tends to do wall up to Louisiana. So, uh, Lake Charles, 
you know, really took the brunt of Hurricane Laura. I think it actually did hit as a four, mm-hmm. but it was it was pretty intense. You know, super high winds. Uh, so we we woke up at four thirty uh, at at the hotel, kind of put our heads together and, and checked the weather, and of course saw that luckily the storm didn't hit any of our our homes or anything like that. But obviously the it had transited over to the east, and probably a good idea to to go ahead and head back to the airport and get airborne. So we, we did that. We came back to the air station and refueled, kind of did an analysis, little ORM with the command. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the two aircraft that had prepoed and our crews were sent out as kind of like the first wave that morning from Houston to go do post-storm assessments. Yeah. So uh, we transit over to the east. And by the way, feel free to interrupt at any time if anything I say doesn't make sense. Well, I was just uh, Googling Hurricane Laura. Just like you said, it was uh, the 10th strongest on record uh, wind-wise that actually made landfall in the United States. It was up to 150-mile-per-hour winds. Um, kind of wow. like, Yeah, kind of like a 20-mile-wide uh, explosion tornado that just ripped everything in its path off the ground uh, through that whole area, as you yeah. pr- probably yeah. saw while you were flying. Yeah, and that's actually a good description. I would say it was more um, reminiscent of a tornado in terms of like the damage on the ground than a hurricane because mm-hmm. it was just really, really severe. Um, you know, l- luckily, and I'm, this is not to downplay the, the hardships of the people in Lake Charles that were, you know, severely affected, but um, it, it really did not have a ton of fatalities from my understanding. And also Lake Charles is significantly less developed than Houston. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, probably a good thing that it went to the east, not again to make light of that, but at the same time, um, there really wasn't a whole lot of SAR that was performed. And in, in fact, uh, none of the Houston crews had any uh, rescues at all. Really? Uh, yeah. Uh, from my recognition or, or remembrance, I don't think anything we, I don't think we operationally uh, hoisted anyone during, during the aftermath. But like I said, we, uh, we headed east over to do the post storm assessment. Uh, took the I-10 transition, of course, right over. It was mm-hmm. actually a, a beautiful day, except pretty gusty. Uh, I think winds up at altitude were in the 40s, 40 knot range, and then you know on the surface, 20 gusting to 30. So uh, pretty significant amount of wind. But other than that, pretty much daytime VMC flying, um, which was nice. You know, sometimes you get that post storm flying, and you know you've got 500 foot, you know, low layer, yeah. low layer ceilings the whole way, and you're dodging towers and all that. And, that wasn't the case here. It was, it was pretty much cleared out. So we transited over to the east and uh, we checked out Beaumont Airport person tasking, uh, made sure that that airport was kind of serviceable, and then transited uh, another you know half an hour over towards Lake Charles area and over to, to Chennault. Mm-hmm. And this this will kind of play into the story as we get into the mishap. But one of the things that just sticks out in my mind is that there had been a chemical, a chlorine plant that exploded um, basically right in the Lake Charles area, right in, in on the lake or near it. Yikes. And there was a TFR that popped up while we were out there because of the explosion and, and the subsequent fire and smoke. And so uh, obviously it catches your eye and, you know, we're using the ESBs and you see it pop up kind of out of nowhere and you're like, oh, wow, all right. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of a surprise. So Chenal Airport itself was closed, but uh, we called on the CTAF and someone rogered up saying, hey, you know, you can come land here. The FBO is open and we've got gas. Uh, we had called beforehand and, uh, you know, no cell service was really existing. So right. we were we were kind of hoping for that, you know. That's impressive um, that they were open and had gas. 
after a cat four hurt. Yeah. And actually, you know, our, our relationship over with the the FBO at Echenault is pretty great. I mean, I think the quote that the FBO manager told me either at that, at that point, or maybe some ROL that I did prior to hurricane season the first year Uh was that, uh, they always stock up to 80,000 gallons before, uh, before hurricane season starts so that they're ready to go. And, um, and that there'll always be someone there. Now, whether or not that's true at all the times, I can't tell you, but uh, it was true that day. And the airport was completely closed. Power wasn't functioning. Um, so I guess, you know, good faith, they're going to be there. Mm-hmm. That's the super nice uh, uh, FBO that has like crawfish, a de fay and stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah, I remember yeah, stopping so there in like flight some, school, I think. Yeah. Ice cream sandwiches. Some relationship, yeah. They always have ice cream and coffee too, but... Uh, yeah, they've got some relationship with like a local local restaurant. So if you go there during the week, you can get uh, get food as well, and it's awesome. Super good occasion. The red beans and rice is my favorite there. Nice, dude. That's good to know. I mean, they obviously probably had that ready to go while you guys got there after this hurricane, right? <laughs> yeah, no, not this time. The uh, so you know the the whole building had been effectively severely damaged. Um, a lot of the windows were blown out, uh, and I remember. Specifically, they had just completed like a major renovation and uh, I felt so bad. You know, you walk in and a lot of the, the windows are blown out. The, the ceiling is dripping, you know, obviously roof damage and stuff. A lot of moisture. All the, all the carpets are sopping wet. Um, and so, you know, we landed there. We, we observed that. And uh, one of the things, obviously, you know, you're on a case uh, or some sort of a response. Mm-hmm. You figure, well, I better call better call back to the unit, let them know we're safe on deck and then try to find out some information about what our follow on tasking would be. And so we all turned our phones on, you know, the four members of my crew after we landed. And at the time, only one member's phone was working. Um, it was my swimmer, my rescue swimmer's phone. And so I was able to make a phone call back to ops and kind of describe to him while we were, while we were on the phone, like, Hey, you know, these are the conditions we haven't seen a ton of signs of distress, although there is a lot of damage. Um, no, you know, SOS, no signaling, mm-hmm. nothing that would make you think that people need to be rescued. And uh, by the way, there's this chemical plant that's on fire and, you know, white smoke is blowing east of the airport or, you know, north of the airport to the east. Hopefully that doesn't shift at all to the south. Mm-hmm. And it almost, you know, <laughs> serendipitously at the time that I'm on the phone, my phone does work enough for a what you might consider like an amber alert but uh, but for the chemical plant fire you know i get a warning on my phone saying hey uh dangerous chlorine plant explosion seven miles from your location um you know stay inside close your windows turn off your air conditioner etc whoa um and so of course you know that's happening a couple other people's phones that happen to work or at least enough to get that signal through uh start blaring while i'm on the phone with the ops and i'm like hey you know I think this is a, a real problem. So, you know, we kind of concluded maybe best not to have a bunch of crews hanging out all the time at Chenault. Mm-hmm. Um, we got some follow-on tasks in to go down to an offshore island uh, and, and check it out for any signs of distress or survivors. And then basically, um, unless we're further diverted or tasked to RTB back to Ellington. So that was basically going to be the end of our day, you know. We, yeah. we flew, flew an hour in the morning back to base. We flew like two point two or so for that first sorty. And then it was going to be, uh, hop in the plane and, uh, 
patrol and route, you know, to go back home. Yeah, I can, I can remember because so, I went over to New Orleans for uh, to pre-stage for the same hurricane and, and we left there that morning. And I feel like the same scene that you saw, not a lot of distress, no distress really. And but everything was just obliterated on the ground, unfortunately. Um, but it was interesting to be a part of a hurricane response that, you know, we definitely want to show the folks out there that we're, we're there for them when they need us. Uh, but there was just didn't happen to have anybody who needed us that day. Yeah. You know, we saw a ton of people, um, you know, I'm not talking about cities worth of people, not, you know, thousands, but I would say a good couple hundred people we saw them, you know, we would do the, the standard low orbit uh, to let them know that we were there and that, you know, we could potentially provide some assistance if they needed it. I mean, certainly people were, I wouldn't say trapped, but, you know, mm -hmm. relatively stranded. There was a ton of water everywhere and um, a lot of homes with damaged roofs or missing roofs. So you could tell that uh, a lot had happened there. But, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, people just kind of gave the casual wave or didn't even acknowledge us. And so, um, you know, I think they were just kind of handling it, you know. Mm -hmm. So following on kind of with the story to get to the, the actual meat, right? I mean, I told you I can drone, drone on forever. But uh, <laughs> so. So there was a fire. We got to get to that, right? Yeah. Um, we uh, we go back out to the aircraft and start up, and we're having some some minor AFCS issues, and so we uh, we elect to do some troubleshooting. And in standard fashion, basically the way that it manifested was uh, we were on the taxi out to uh, to the runway or the taxiway to take off, and doing takeoff checks, we couldn't get AFCS to engage. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, basically stopped in our, our present position out there and started to troubleshoot. Uh, what we now know is not the safest profile, but wasn't, uh, you know, a known quantity back then, is that uh, we had a 20 to 30 knot tailwind while we were just sitting there troubleshooting. Mm -hmm. And we probably stayed there for about 15 minutes. Um, the the mishap investigation probably has exact times from the, the BFDR and all that, but about what I estimate mm -hmm. that we sat there for. Uh, so anyway, we're doing the troubleshooting, talking about calling back to home plate and then realizing, you know, like only one phone works. Should we try that? And at the same time, again, that we're doing all this troubleshooting, I'm kind of looking out the left side of the aircraft and we're facing east. So left is to the north. And I can see the smoke cloud from the uh, chlorine plant. Which we had yeah. been able to see the whole time. I mean, you know, don't get me wrong. It, it's not like it appeared out of nowhere, but right. you could kind of see the white the white smoke going by, you know, what appeared to be a few miles north of the airport. And then uh, it just appeared like it was getting closer, you know. Mm -hmm. um, not like it was engulfing the field or anything like that, but it did look like it was moving to the south towards our location at some point. Your little sense and of so, urgency there. Yeah, totally. You know, I mean, now I've gotten, I've seen the fire in person from the air. We saw a CFR pop up. We landed and got uh, these alerts and warnings on our phones. And now I'm seeing what appears to be the smoke getting closer. So it's obviously on my mind, especially as the PIC, you know, keeping the crew safe, keeping the aircraft safe, um, making sure we're not breathing in some caustic chemicals. Uh, I'm definitely running that stuff through my mind as I'm also thinking, hey, it's daytime VMC and it's an AFCS problem. Like, come on, you know, yeah, like we can, we, uh, we can do this. Yeah. So we had a good CRM discussion for, for a minute or two. And I said, Hey, listen, uh, and you can 
armchair quarterback this part as much as you want. I said, hey, listen, I don't want to get out of the aircraft and call, and I especially don't want to shut down in case we have some other issues. I don't want to delay the process of our departure. How does everyone feel about flying, you know, back to Houston BFR without AFPS? You know, and it's going to be a little, little wiggly for a while, but I think we'll make it. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have um, any so, AFCS or just one of the four channels wasn't working? Yeah, could never, uh, couldn't get any of the channels to engage. We followed Weird. all the appropriate procedures. You know, we cycled avionics uh, a couple times. I think we did that twice. We did the circuit breakers. So, I mean, we did everything we could think of to, to get it to work for us. And again, uh, I don't know that we did anything wrong. And I don't believe that we ever had any results from our um, mishap investigation on why exactly it wouldn't engage. But you also got to realize that this was, you know, a uh, aircraft commander. And I think my co-pilot was an FP at the time who had about two months in the echo total. Yeah. So I don't know what we have 40 hours maybe. And even, even my echo time was, could have been less because when I came back to the unit, I went back to flying Delta for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So, um, who knows? But very inexperienced echo pilot, uh, even despite the designation. So, uh, who knows if we did anything wrong in the troubleshooting? But we, we followed the red book for sure. And, and uh, anyway, we decided to accept the risk. So we we go out onto the taxiway, and here's where the fun part starts. So you can tell everyone to just fast forward to this part yeah, of the cut, uh, cut to minute twenty three. Yep. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we we taxi out. Uh, I start the takeoff roll. We're going to do a running takeoff because we're kind of following the taxiway. We're, you know, we're max first weight, of course. Yep. Uh, always. And start our roll. And right after that, the rescue stormer says, Hey, there's a bunch of black stuff coming off the aircraft, uh, with maybe a few extra expletives in there instead. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> use your imagination. Mm-hmm. So at the same time, we also had an engine parameter degradation on the ICAP that the yellow warning pops up. And then also in what seems like the same time in my memory, we got a radio call on the CTAP saying, Hey, Coast Guard, you're on fire. Oh boy. So of course you're thinking, what? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm trying to process these three different things probably related. Uh, so let's pull off the uh, taxiway here. So we pulled off, we, we pulled into the wind and literally, right as we're coming to a stop, the uh, the engine firelight comes on uh, for the number two engine, I think. Uh, so anyway, the, the firelight comes on, and we're like, oh, wow. My flight mechanic opens the door, looks up, says, yeah, we're on fire. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is happening. Uh, did you, so, uh, you, did know, you feel like uh, as soon as that firelight came on, you're like, yeah, this is a confirmed fire, given the other... Uh, indicators that you had from the back seat and over the radio? Yeah, I mean, immediately, yeah. you know? And um, so we start to go through the EP, and uh, my pilot, who's super sharp, no, you know, no complaints at all. That's not what this is. I'm just going to tell a funny anecdote. So um, we start to go through the EP, and we get through. He gets ready to pop the, uh, the fire bottles, and he's like, is it confirmed? I'm like, Yeah. Dude, we're on fire. <laughs> like, what more do you need? So anyway, and it, you know, he was just following exactly how we do in the sim, of course, and, and in the plane when we practice and all that other stuff. But yeah, uh, it was uh, it was confirmed for sure. Oh, yeah. And I think we also had a disagreement about the, the ESSL. Um, so I think he 
he had his hand, he was just sitting in the right seat. He had his hand on the number two. I had mine on the number one. And in both of our memories, I think we would tell you that we pulled both of those EFSLs. But I believe uh, it was found that I didn't pull mine. Uh, and which the funny part about that is we actually had a little disagreement in the plane. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, let's pull both EFSLs. And, uh, and he was like, well, it's just the number two side. And I think he was going through the process for like the in-flight EP. Um, I could have sworn that we pulled both. Um, I had heard a rumor later from the salvage team that the number one was still not pulled. So I don't think that that was a, uh, you know, uh, contributing event to damage because the number one side never caught on fire, although it did have fire damage from the number two. Mm-hmm. But, uh, man, it's funny how that, that stuff kind of works in your brain. And I remember the discussion between the two of us, but I must just not have pulled it, even though I said, no, it's, it's you know, we're on deck. We should pull both. And somehow my arm just didn't move the lever. So funny how that uh, how that all works. Did you find that um, time slowed down at all? Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, the previous episode, two episodes ago, maybe with Bruce Jones and just kind of a mishap he had, and everything just seemed to go glacial speed. You know, with what actually happened in ten seconds to him. Did you feel feel the same kind of feeling? Oh yeah, I mean, time dilation is totally a real thing. You know, um, there's no question about it. I, my estimates for how long everything occurred are totally inaccurate. I mean, I, I never got a chance to review the, the Vader, mm-hmm. but, um, which is probably good, but at the same time, um, I have no idea exactly how, how long everything took. It seems like it took a really long time. Like we were in the aircraft for multiple minutes after pulling off and stopping. Mm-hmm. Um, but my guess is it probably was just a couple seconds, you know, I don't know, less than 30 seconds probably between the time that we got the firelight and that we're out of the aircraft. Dang. Um, there's a ton of videos uh, that, you know, were taken by other crews. Some Army National Guard crews were there. Uh, there was a New Orleans crew there. And if, if you kind of look at the time, obviously you don't have the overlay of, of the, the Vader data, but at the same time, you can kind of estimate it. And it, it does seem pretty short. So I guess we, uh, we did what we were supposed to do, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, got out of the aircraft and then uh, we were able to, to get safely away. And one of the, the funny side notes of that whole story is that uh, I remember getting out, kind of walking around the plane very quickly. Uh, uh, and, yep. And uh, my uh, co-pilot and rescue swimmer were, were well clear of the plane by the time I even got over there. But the, uh, the flight mech was like kind of motioning around inside the aircraft to try to grab the fire extinguisher. And this fire is now above the head. I mean, we're talking about fully engulfing the number two uh, engine compartment and above the uh, the top of the head. I mean, it's, it's a pretty big fire. It's pretty. It's starting to feel hot. You know, you can feel it outside. And uh, I remember he was trying to trying to get that, and I'm just yelling at him like, "Get away from the plane! You know, get out of there!" Yeah. And uh, so, so he finally comes over. I mean, I could have swore I even you know, maybe went up to him to try to grab him, but I don't think I did. It just, you know, got over there and, and made him get away from that thing. And, uh, turns out later I find out not only was he trying to grab the fire extinguisher, but he was just trying to get his cell phone, <laughs> um, which I felt kind of bad about, but at the same time, you know, it's not worth your life. So, yeah, um, it's crazy how I, attached I I we said, are to those. I think I said something like, dude, I'm so sorry. I'll just buy you a new freaking phone. <laughs> like whatever, <Yeah. laughs> you know, my bad. Um, so we, uh, we kind of walk away and, uh, you know, we look back and I mean, man, again, 
feels like a long time, but I think probably within two or three minutes of us getting out of the aircraft, the crash fire rescue crew was there uh, dousing it in AFFF, which is also awesome that they were even at uh, the airport. Yeah. Because right. had they not been, I mean, I think that airframe would have been totally lost. I mean, you never know, but it was burning pretty good uh, before they showed up. So those who haven't seen the videos, uh, probably not supposed to say this, but I bet they're out there somewhere that you can probably probably see it if you're curious what it looks like and uh you know as a pic i I can't speak for how everyone else felt but you definitely have that moment where you're you kind of turn around and you can see your career literally going up in flames potentially (laughs) (laughs) you're like wow is that it for me did we do everything right yeah Uh, and if we didn't was it you know contributory to the event you know did we troubleshoot too long did something on the aircraft just fail and bail on us i mean what you know, you start to really question that stuff and you know, yeah, part how, of this podcast how, can probably be to talk about that. But Yeah. How was your pucker factor? Did you, did you feel like you were able to maintain really good composure? And then just like you were just talking there at some point, you're like, take a big, you know, exhale. And you're like, okay, that just happened. Let me process what just happened. And then those questions start coming in. Or um, did you guys feel like you were just asses and elbows the whole time? You know, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly, you know, piece by piece how I felt during the entirety of the day. I mean, you know, we we caught on fire at like 11 o'clock and I think we were at the airport for like three more hours waiting for a C-144 crew to come pick us up, which to be honest, thank God for them. I mean, the crew from Corpus came up and Mm -hmm. gave us a ride home. I mean, we were toast, man. Like, uh, first of all, 20, 30 knots of wind and like 90 degrees just being out there on the ramp, like. Uh, I'll come back to like some, some of our post mishap stuff, but you know, where's the out and then the emotional drain starts to set in. I mean, at the time when the firelight came on, yeah, we knew it was confirmed. We were moving with some emergency. We got out of the plane, all that stuff. But, but truthfully, you don't really think about what's happening. You know, yeah. um, adrenaline's pumping heat in the moment. You don't, you don't have any like reaction time or, or emotional reaction to the event. So you just kind of get out. And uh, like I said, we walked away and that was really like the first miniature instance of, wow, this happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a, a video uh, that uh, one of the other crew members took from Houston of us walking away from the plane. And it's like your classic action movie video of like <laughs> the, the oh, aircraft's you- on fire in the back. And, you know, we look like a bunch of Billy Badass <laughs> leaving. But at the same time, trust me, we didn't feel that way. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, you were definitely a meme on the 65 uh, Skeds Cube for, for a while. For a while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, hey, I'm, a, I'm proud. I'm proud I can contribute. Still, you guys you did know? look like badasses. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it looked good. I, I don't think we were feeling quite that uh, that badass at the time. But, yeah, we, uh, you know, we walked away from the plane. We went inside. And, of course, like the other crew from Houston, the NOLA crew, a bunch of army crews are there and, and specifically the two other coast guard crews that were there, like kind of came up to us and like, Oh my God, dude, are you guys okay? Like, yeah. like what just happened? You know I mean? They're watching this thing burning and getting a triple F board on it. And it's uh, obviously even for them, probably something that they'll never forget. I would imagine. Was, uh, did you find out who gave you that? Hey, coast guard, you're on fire radio call. Cause yeah. Thank, thank yeah, that was <laughs> for that. That was the NOLA crew. Um, really? And uh, I apologize. I'm not, I'm specifically not using anyone else's names only because I haven't like, you know, cleared 
this story with them and I don't want to like embarrass anyone, but yeah, I mean, the, the NOLA crew was the one who, who made that call. Yeah. Um, and, and thank God, because that was another data point for us. I mean, I think we were already in the process and obviously that firelight eventually came on, but I, you know, in, in hindsight, I remember later on that night thinking like, yeah, thanks plane. Like the last indication we get is the only one that really. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, I know, you know, whatever. That's how it's going to go sometimes. But you just feel like, come on, dude. <laughs> yep. Yeah. I think it's important to, to talk about, too, you know, the way we train EPs. In your guys' scenario, just like you are saying, the one light that would really get everyone's attention to let you know that you have a fire, and there was already a fire that was established and burning for quite some time before that light came on. So, you know, when that or if that light comes on, just know that, Hey, you might want to move with the sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that, uh, it just goes to show you, like we talk about in the EP guide and, and when we get these roundtable discussions, I mean, being creative as IPs, ACs and PICs is important because you can't just sit in the sim and be like, all right, now you have an engine fire and then let's go through and see if it's confirmed. I mean, that, that might be your last indication. So like many EPs, maybe it's a good, uh, you know, impetus for creative instructors and, and people who are passionate about their jobs to, to take some time and think, Hey, how can I, how can I creatively initiate this IP so that the crew learns something a little bit different? You know? Yeah. I mean, that's a great point. And I'm, I'm thinking about the guy sitting in the back of the helicopter because those were your initial indications. And a lot of the times I feel like those are the people that feel that weird vibration or they see that status light first before anybody else, like, you know, we give swimmers grief in the 65 for snoozing in the back. But to be honest, like those guys are, are on it. A lot of the times that I've had, uh, an EP, like it's been a swimmer or a flight mech that's called it out. And like, it's, it's really important how that total crew concept can really affect, uh, like a good EP discussion and getting through an EP properly. Yeah. And I mean, you think about it this way, like you mentioned, Kenny, like the fire was developed enough that the first indication we had in the plane was pieces of the plane falling off. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, think about that. You know, it's not like it was just a a tiny little match or some smoke. I mean, you know, pieces of the plane physically got hot enough to burn and depart the plane in a 15 knot forward taxi, you know? Um, So obviously that firelight, depending on where, and we know this, depending on where the, uh, the fire develops and all that might not be the first indication. So just Mm -hmm. interesting. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, sometimes I feel like we get into a, a training rut where, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to go do a stand check and you go to the pattern because, you know, I need about 12 landings to complete it. And in the downwind or crosswind, you're like, firelight. And everyone's like, okay, roger that. I'm going to just continue my downwind here. Um, you start going through the EP instead of saying like, okay, well, maybe the best thing for me to do is like, how quickly can I get on deck right now? Um, that way, right. if there is a fire great, we're on deck and now we can argue about what we need to do once we're on deck and maybe we get it right and <laughs> maybe we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're on deck, it's it's not as crucial, right, as if you were in the air. Yeah, or like what if you're yeah. flying over land too and there's you give that EP, actually make people start to come down into a hover profile over a field that they're like, hey, I'm going to land in that field. Okay, get set up and start yeah. landing in that field. Like don't go touch down in that farmer's field, but there's a lot of training value in actually proceeding down that path. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, so that's definitely a takeaway that I have, but yeah, continue. Go ahead. Yeah. Not to go down like a, a darker path, but Ed, your human brain start wandering of like, man, what would have happened if we had skipped kind of the discussion? We're like, Oh, AFCS, no problem. Like, let's just take off. And you took off at minute five instead of minute 12. Yeah. I mean, uh, dude, there's no, I, I can't imagine anyone that would have a different reaction to me. Uh, I mean, maybe there are some people that are stronger, uh, you know, mentally than I was, but you absolutely take your ESB out and you start to do the math on like the amount of minutes of flight time and where you would have ended up and uh, deciding like, Hey, you know, okay, we troubleshot, let's say I'm right. And it was 15 minutes. If we had troubleshot for 10 minutes, would that have been long enough to cause a fire? And if so, where would we have been five minutes later, you know, 10 miles away from the airport or so, yeah. uh, you know, basically ditching in Lake Charles. And then you do the math like, well, what if it was only five minutes of troubleshooting? Um, maybe that wouldn't have been enough to catch on fire and we wouldn't even be having this Flight Suit Friday podcast today, you know? Yeah. Um, I, you know, there's no part of me that didn't do the what ifs. And uh, we were SISM debriefed. Um, we had no injuries, no one was hurt. You know, this is an awesome, uh, learning experience. And we luckily got, you know, some, um, positive impacts. I think we're taking away for the fleet and depot level, uh, maintenance and, and everything like that. So there, there were some good learning lessons for the service from it and no one had to pay the, uh, the price personally, which was really nice. Um, but even still, I mean, there were definitely a couple nights in that first like two weeks that I was back and, and we were, we were grounded for about two weeks. Okay. I was um, going to ask that. Was that mandatory yeah. or is that just on um, your decision or each individual person's decision? We all uh, kind of like discussed it. The, the unit was open to what we needed and uh, we thought that was probably an appropriate amount of time. I think it was two weeks. Um, technically I, uh, yeah, I think, there's supposed to be some other administrative functions that uh, may or may not have been carried out. And that's not for me to speak about, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, um, we were down for, for two weeks, I believe. And we basically like got system debriefed, kind of like, you know, chatted about it, talked about it and decided that was like a good amount of time, I believe, mm. um, to, to kind of rest. And yeah, those first couple of days, uh, definitely thought a lot about the what if, and then, you know, now a year and a half later, definitely not something that I often do, uh, really only comes up anytime that, you know, I, I tell someone the story or recant it or, or recount it rather, um, you know, stuff like that. So it's, uh, it's definitely more calming now. Um, but it was a unique experience for me because not only, uh, was I obviously the PIC, but I was also the safety officer at the unit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in hindsight of the, uh, of the mishap, you know, we get outside or sorry, in the aftermath of the mishap, we get outside the plane. We're all safe. We let the fire crash fire rescue crew do what they need to do. And then I kind of go into SSO mode, you know, I'm like, well, I'm here, um, better start documenting, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, so, and for better or worse, you know, I mean, in some ways it was probably good that I was there because there was so much wind that the scene did get quite disturbed over time. Um, you know, little pieces of cowling had kind of continued to come off during the fire and were also blown off by the uh, F spray. And so then as it, you know, as the wind kept blowing it and blowing it, pieces, you know, kind of filtered out into the midfield of the airport and all that that weren't initially there. So 
Uh, I think it was good to do, but at the same time, I think also our crew is a little bit too involved in our own mishaps. And I don't mean that in a, like, you know, some sort of like disturbance of the evidence sort of way. I more mean it like emotionally for us. Um, probably would have been better for us to, to not really go interact with it again yeah. at all. Um, so that's, that's a lesson learned for me is, uh, you know, even though I had the expertise and the training, probably should have just asked one of the other crew members to like hook me up and do it for me. And maybe I should have just like stayed in the FBO with the rest of my crew and done nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, interesting takeaways there. Don't get me wrong. Like we weren't you know, out there taking, taking parts of the plane off and, you know, crying or anything like that. But it was just <laughs> kind of weird to be involved. You're, I, I mean, I've talked to you about this story before, Mike, and, uh, it's like one of my favorite parts of the story and it, it's, what happened with the firefighters. Cause like, I feel like as a firefighter at, a, at an airport, like you are sitting, you know, you can only play so many games of candy crush before your mind like melts, just waiting for that one opportunity to respond to that aircraft incident on, on deck. And what, what were they like on the scene? I mean, like I said, again, I can't give you an accurate estimation of the amount of time that the process between when we got out of the plane or even when all those calls went out on CTAF until, uh, until they showed up, but it must've been like a few minutes, maybe three, mm-hmm. you know, and they came out, they doused it. They fought that fire for a long time. And at the end, when we went back to the plane, I remember the chief came over to me and he's in like the potato suit, you know, he's, he's soaked in sweat. I mean, he's dying and he just like rips his helmet off comes over and shakes my hand and says i've been waiting for this my whole life <laughs> and i think i said something like well i'm glad i could help you out <laughs> oh I mean, my geez. god yeah you know one man's trash another man's treasure i can, I guess, I can <laughs> picture that i can picture that so well that's he was so so you know probably uh late 40s and just so happy to have put out an aircraft fire, you know? Yeah. I mean, you think about it. I mean, even in terms of the profession that we're in, uh, people's worst days are some of our most exciting times in our career, uh, where we go out and we rescue somebody and the weather's garbage and the waves are huge. And we're like telling the story over beers to everybody and how awesome the flying was. And then you think about that poor soul that was on that sailboat that you're rescuing. And they're like, I never, ever, ever, ever want that to ever happen to me again kind of thing. So it's, it's an interesting yeah. like switch in the perspective that we normally have doing search and rescue to maybe what you felt <laughs> having your aircraft catch fire. Even like thinking of like that morning, he's like, uh, babe, I got to get up, go to work. She's like, dude, a cat five hurricane just rolled through. I don't think anyone's flying <laughs> yeah, around. No, he's gonna, like, you never know. You yep, never know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he answered the call, did the rest <laughs> of his crew and man, were they stoked? I mean, they were, you know, I, I'm sure they took a bunch of pictures and we're all pumped and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so yeah, it, it was an interesting experience for them too. Yeah. So they, I mean, you just mentioned like the, it took them a while to fight that fire. I'm curious if there was like a fuel, uh, something going on with fuel or I don't know. Uh, obviously the fire extinguishers didn't quite put it out. Yeah, no, um, we, actually that's something I wanted to mention. So just a, a, a side note for like practicing these EPs and stuff. You know, so we use the primary and secondary bottles, you know, per the, per the dash one, did that part right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's funny because we did it and I think we were just assuming they would actually work. <laughs> yeah. So 
so there was a delay. Like we, we hit the bottles and internally we're kind of sitting there, you know, for probably only a second or two, but there's no feedback. You know, you don't hear or like a <laughs> popping sound or like some sort of thing that you would associate with like a fire extinguisher going off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the fire was still burning. So we're like, well, uh, let's hit those buttons again and <laughs> yeah. get out, you know? <laughs> Yeah, the only time you do is in the same. You're waiting for the IP to be like, all right, guys, uh, nice job. Let's just uh, clean that back up, throw those EFSLs back forward, and uh, we'll, we'll take back off and go into the next DP, you know? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, there was definitely a little bit of a moment where you're like, oh, even if these things, you know, even if these things functioned, they didn't work. You know, they weren't effective. Yeah. Um, and so that was kind of an interesting little takeaway. But yeah. Uh, yeah. And even if funny. they did and it did extinguish the fire, like, yeah, it's time to get the hell out of here. Yeah. Yeah, why hang around? Like, it could reflash. You don't want to be there. Um, the reason they had to fight the fire for so long, uh, and from what I observed, is just it was so windy okay. that the AFFF blanket kept getting dispersed. You know, like, they'd create a nice little blanket over the plane. Once the fire was totally out, they'd create a blanket over the plane, and then, boom, it would just blow away, you know? So um, I, they they doused that thing with AFFF. I mean, a, a shocking quantity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Every piece of avionics, including cell phones, destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Side note: my cell phone was also in the door. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm still rocking it. I'm talking to you on it right now. Yeah, dude. Nothing a bowl yeah, of rice can't fix, dude. Gets rid of all that. Yeah, a triple F, no match for the rice bowl. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, going back a little bit, did you find yourself uh, having a hard time getting back in the aircraft? Do you have any like lack of some trust issues, maybe? Uh, you know, I was concerned about that, but no, I, I don't think I was like, you know, up to my same standards initially necessarily. Um, and I certainly was, uh, probably pretty like conservative (laughs) afterwards for quite a while. And mostly because I just felt like I didn't totally understand what happened with the AFCS still. And it, it, that, that answer really never kind of came out, um, of like why we were even troubleshooting, like what was actually the, the cause of the failure. And so I think I was just a little bit uh, lacking confidence in my echo knowledge for mm-hmm. quite a while. Um, but, but no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't go to work and, and con- I'm not concerned about it. And I don't think, uh, Hey, I'm strapping into this thing uh, today, you know, now a year and a half later or, or more, and it's going to bail on me. You know, um, yeah. I don't really have that thought now but there was probably some growing pains coming back and some maybe some trust issues too you know yeah i mean if if you're a fleet pilot too and you're interested like go back and look at the all safety uh it's in the general messages i think for last year uh with the final review and you can see how much effort that alc and 41 and 1131 put into researching and then changing out parts um throughout the entire fleet so um like yeah it sucks that this happens but it happens and then we fix it and then we move on kind of mentality. Right. Right. And luckily, like I said, you know, besides uh, some emotional uh, trauma, perhaps no one really was uh, injured whatsoever, you know? So, yeah, I'm trying to think about, so that the name of that EP is AFCS computer or series actuator failure. If I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. Cause I think I've seen it before. Uh, There was a Hitron crew that, they couldn't get anything, and it was actually the computer that failed, whereas 99.9% of the time, it's a serious actuator that failed, which is why it's only one channel. But I don't know. Maybe that'll help you uh, figure out your 
why none of them worked. Mm-hmm. Maybe that the actual yeah. com- the no, whole I mean, computer shit the bed. And I'm sure that's probably what it was. It was just interesting that uh, you know they never like really analyzed that or or gave a conclusive answer in the uh, in the mishap report. Yeah, and I think it goes. Um, as we talk about the 65 and aging and parts availability stuff of, you know, these, these little things come up and I think we're all ingrained to try to justify it as quickly as we can and move on. So, okay guys, just AFCS. Uh, we don't know what's wrong. Who cares? We don't need it. Let's just take off and go flying. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, maybe we need to take an extra second to think about it and figure out, okay, what, what are we doing? And is that gain, matching the risk that we're accepting for an aircraft that's not working properly. I, and yeah. I, I don't know the answer to that question um, myself. So, Yeah. And I mean, I think too, you know, situationally that the strength of an idea that that chemical plant was going to be a, a problem for us, uh, man, it was pervasive. It really was. I mean, we were all concerned. You could see it. Um and so that played a real role in, in kind of our analysis of yeah. the risk versus gain. Mm-hmm. And, and the funny, you know, now knowing in hindsight, we were there for three more hours and uh, never, never did the smoke get close enough to cause a problem, right. you know, but you, you just didn't know at the time. Could you smell it? What was there a smell associated with that plume that you guys saw? So we, and I think I forgot to mention this, we thought we smelled that while we were troubleshooting and it was probably us on fire. And that's what I was going to get at. Cause you know, you're like, once again, you're like, Oh, I smell something, but I'm not going to say anything. Cause it's obviously that giant chemical plant that's burning that we've been talking about for the last hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, very well could have been uh, you guys. Yeah, totally. Totally. Is there um, anything that you would have done different now that you've had, you know, over a year or so to reflect on it? Uh, man, I guess I would have pulled that EFSL number one. So I didn't have to tell the embarrassing story that I missed it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, honestly, uh, don't, uh, troubleshoot with a tailwind. Okay. Follow the dash one. That's good. And other than that, no, I really wouldn't. Um, I mentioned getting a little bit less involved. If, uh, any safety officer or, or future safety officers are listening and you are in a class A, don't do the mishap uh, investigation yourself. Step mm-hmm. back. And if you do, put that um, EFSL on your side if you missed it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 Yeah. Go back and cover your tracks. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. No, uh, I think that's it. Yeah. That, that's probably the, the two big takeaways. You know, keep yourself a little bit less involved. There's other people there that could have gone out and taken all the documentation. Probably best for me and my crew to just stay un, unassociated yeah. afterwards. Well, Mike, you're truly leaving your stamp on the Dash One because there will be a a caution or a warning associated with tailwinds, extended ground operations with tailwinds, which is yours truly. Well done, sir. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I got my signature in there now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's been research and, and uh, I think there's probably gonna be a follow on talent article for those who are interested about the research that uh, 41 ALC uh, Airbus did regarding this mishap. So be it probably be an interesting read for you. Um, so our, Engines operate hot. You know, it just happens. Um, what do you got? Any other questions, Kenny? I don't think so. Sweet. Mike, what do you got? Anything else you want to talk about? 
Uh, no, man. I mean, uh, I think you had asked me to come prepared with a piece of aviation advice. Oh, yes, indeed. So, yes, sir. Let's I don't know it. if you still want to hear me talk anymore. Everyone might be done. No, we, <laughs> we always here. finish the episode with uh, some sort of aviation advice that either you, uh, you received at some point in your career that you would like to give to anyone listening. Cool. Uh, I actually have two. I have one aviation-wise and then uh, one career advice uh, nice. element. Um, so aviation wise, uh, this is actually from my dad. He's a GA pilot. And when he was going to flight school, just on, you know, on his own back in the seventies, uh, his civilian and flight instructor, uh, used to use the quote, fly the effing airplane. <laughs> uh-huh. And, uh, that I use that, uh, all the time, usually not with the expletive included, but, um, you know, a lot of times when we're flying, even, you know, even experienced pilots do this sometimes, myself included. You know, you, you land a little bit off center line or you land long or maybe you don't hover super smooth. And your first inclination is, oh, the wind or, oh, yeah, you know, I got pushed to the side or Definitely blah, blah, blah. You know, excuses. Yep. And uh, the plane's going to go where you want it to go. So don't accept mediocrity. Um, I know, Kenny, your thing is aim small, miss small. You know, same yes, idea, sir. right? Like, yeah. don't suck. Uh, own, own it. And if you don't do it good, do it again. And, uh, you know, fly the plane, fly the effing plane. If you have to say it to yourself, do it. Um, make it, make it happen for yourself. Kenny then, has uh, actually said that I, to I, yeah. me. <laughs> I used to say that all the San Fran co-pilots hated me because I'd be like, dude, you fly the aircraft. Do not let the aircraft fly you. I, but the same thing, you know, you yeah. go for a stand check and like, hey man, how are you on the line? Oh, you know, about four or five feet to the left. And like, all right, well, I guess I'll just have to sign, sign your stand check off. Like, can't land with crosswinds. So we'll have to check the winds every time you go flying or on duty to make sure that, you know, winds right down the pipe so you can land, you know, where you say you're going to land. I think you can temper that though. Like as an IP, if you're telling a a young co-pilot fly the plane, you also probably need to like give them some background (laughs) of like, Hey, like this is what's happening. This is what you need to do just to give them a little more. And that's just from my experience, having you tell me that and be like, Oh, sweet. (laughs) I'll I'll just get on center. Like it's easy. Yeah. (laughs) Cool, dude. Yeah, that's really helpful advice. Thanks, IP. Yeah, right. thanks, dude. I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying, dude. All right, yeah. Sorry, Mike. We <laughs> Try harder, then. Try harder. Be a better pilot. <laughs> What's your career no, advice? No, but uh, oh, sorry. But sir, right. I do want to say one more thing. I, I do think it's um, worthwhile because sometimes even as pilots, we just accept mediocrity. Yes. Instead of someone being like, well, why didn't you put a correction? And you're like, I, I was just fine landing five feet to the left. And you're like, you will never, ever become a better pilot if you just consistently settle for mediocrity. Yeah. I, no, I agree. Like I flew with a student uh, two nights ago in a gnarly crosswind. And every time he picked up into a hover or no hover, we would go further left than you normally would translate. And towards the end, I, I looked at him like, hey, dude, don't let the wind kick your ass. Like you are better <laughs> than the wind. Look at me. Yeah. You are better than the wind. And he picked up into a good hover and he looked at me, he's like, yeah, I just needed, I needed you to, to tell me that so that I could like stop letting it push me around. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Mike, we're totally hijacking. Totally hijacking. Continue. No. <laughs> no, I mean, Hey, I love it. I love it. That's the whole point. And then, uh, yeah. So my little career advice thing is, is not mine, but I have really tried to live by it. Uh, my first tour off boss and then EXO commander Ben Maul is, uh, amongst, among one of my uh, favorite mentors, uh, I've got I've got quite a few, but one of my favorite mentors uh, that I've really tried to glean a lot from. And one of the quotes that he said to me when I was probably like an FP, uh, we were talking about like career advice, 
uh, way back in, in LA. And uh, he said to me, uh, never apply for the job that you think you're supposed to want. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've really tried to internalize that. You know, um, I always really wanted to fly three tours in a row. And I'm so glad that I did, even though I did catch on fire. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, and, and not to say that, you know, my career is over or anything like that, but, but at the same time, I'm really glad that I did what I wanted to do instead of like, oh, I've done two flying tours and now um, I should probably go to staff because that's what makes sense. Or I should probably mm-hmm. apply to grad school because that's what makes sense. And don't get me wrong. Anyone who wants to do that stuff, good on you. We need it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but basically, his the gist of his quote was, if you apply for the job you think you're supposed to want and you go to them, you'll never do them as well as you would do the job you want to do. And you'll probably end up getting worse though with OERs anyway. So mm-hmm. you end up shooting yourself in the foot by trying to follow some preordained or destiny path mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just doing what you think you want to do. Now, of course, uh, you know, needs of the service are going to put you wherever, wherever that happens to be. And it might not be what you asked for, but his point was to not just try to follow path because you think you're supposed to. And I thought that was really good advice. I've always really tried to internalize that. I need that advice. Thank you for saying that, man, because I, I want to stray off the path, but a lot of times, you know, that's, that is kind of what the, um, I don't know, the mo- not the motto, but the, the constant uh, feedback that we a lot of times get. Like you need to do two flying tours and you need to go to grad school and then you need to do staff and you need to come back as an ops boss, XOCO, retire kind of mentality yeah, yeah. but i also think yeah, and, and you, you need to do that with eyes wide open right so if, yeah. if you do decide that you're going to do four flying tours um and you get passed over for 05 don't be complaining mm-hmm. about you getting passed over for 05 because the rules were pretty explicit yes. when you entered enter the game right absolutely it's not like people don't lay it out and say like hey this is how you promote and you're like okay i want that or i want four flying tours and yes I'm okay if I get passed over or maybe you don't, maybe you do grad school on your own. You keep flying. Yeah. Well, uh, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with Sam and I today about your, your mishap. Um, I'm sure lots of people will, will talk about this amongst their wardrooms and amongst themselves and even do some internal reflection of how they might handle, uh, an EP or their worst flying day when they weren't expecting it. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks Mike. Yeah, big time pleasure, guys. Uh, hopefully it helped some peeps and uh, wasn't too painful. Yeah, buddy. We'll see you soon. All right, thanks. We say goodbye, but now-